Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. Uh, we have a really good show this week. First, we're going to speak to Svante Myrick, who is the mayor of Ithaca, New York, and is um, engaged in one of the most ambitious police reform efforts in the country. Then we're going to be joined by Wall Street Journal reporter Drew Hinshaw, who is going to tell us um, like a wild story of the somewhat lawless high seas. So we're changing things up a little bit there. First, I want to follow up on a story we mentioned last week, a very important story, um, something that impacts all Americans. I'm referring, of course, to the shortage of Chick-fil-A's secret sauce, which Fox News had reported as one of um, Joe Biden's many crises last week. Serious stuff, serious stuff. So this week, um, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt a Republican, naturally, is running for re-election, and he seized on this failure of Biden's, um, I don't know, centrally planned Soviet-style economy. This, the great Chick-fil-A secret sauce crisis of 2021. You thought the pandemic was something. This is this is serious. And you know what? A mask. You can you can wear a mask during a pandemic. It's not going to get you any secret sauce, right? So this is. So um, Stitt is seeking, uh, I guess, a re-election, and he sent out a fundraiser this week, which read in part, and I quote, Chick-fil-A has a short sauce shortage, and you want to know why? Because of Joe Biden's radical liberal policies. Gas stations are having mass shortages, he wrote. Gas prices are soaring. The cost of groceries is through the roof. And now Chick-fil-A has a sauce shortage, and who is paying the price? Everyday Americans, everyday Americans. Joe Biden's policies, he continues, have real world consequence, consequences that he doesn't seem tuned into. He's more concerned about appeasing the woke liberals with his out of touch, radical, socialist, blah, blah, blah. And it goes on and on and on. And it's, you know, this stuff is, it's entertaining because it's so stupid, Right. But in a sense, it's just it's not a joke because we're dealing with a coalition, one of our two major parties uh, before, but more so after Trump, that is just brazen in in making shit up. There doesn't have to be any connection between their claims and the reality. And they're backed up by an alternative media infrastructure that repeats the nonsense that they say until believes, people believe it to be true. And I'm not saying that, you know, politicians and advocates and activists on the left don't spin stuff. We do, right? We shade the truth. We are selective with our facts. All of that is true, right? And that's that would be fine if they did that too. But at this point, the right just says things that are just demonstrably untrue by the way gas prices now are higher than they were last year when the entire economy was shut down because of covid they are virtually identical to may of 2019 under trump virtually identical to may 2018 under trump etc 
Lauren Boebert, the gun nut from Colorado, just for an example, right? She said this week that Texas had not reported a single COVID death since lifting its mask mandate and other restrictions. Not a single death, not one. And folks, I want to tell you, the great state of Texas has reported 3,400 deaths since then. 3,400 deaths. So she's making a claim, and she's making an argument. The claim is central to her argument. She's going on about masks not being necessary, um, restrictions on capacity and venues, whatever, not being necessary. And, and to, to support her point, she's saying that Texas opened up and hasn't had a single death, and Texas has had 3,400 deaths since then. According to Texas, according to Texas's own reporting. Elise Stefanik, the number three, the new number three House Republican after the party purged Liz Cheney. She said of the latest jobs report that was like, you know, disappointing. Everybody else was saying, oh, this new jobs report is disappointing. She claimed that it was the worst jobs report in 20 years. Now, the economy added 266,000 jobs, so that it just can't be true, right? We know that we lost jobs during the pandemic. We know that we lost jobs during the Great Recession. We know that we've lost jobs intermittently in the last 20 years. We've had bad jobs reports. The economy adding 266,000 jobs, that can't be the worst in 20 years. And you know what? It wasn't the worst this year. It wasn't even the worst this year, right? We had a much worse jobs report in January, final jobs report under Trump. Ted Cruz this week claimed that HR1 is explicitly designed to register millions of undocumented immigrants. Of course, he didn't say undocumented immigrants. He said illegal, illegal immigrants. You know, um, CNN fact checker, Daniel Dale, he he recounted all of that, and then he says not a single thing that he said was true. He said that in the in the on the floor of the Senate, right, with people who had written the bill. But there's no, you know, there's no consequences attached to that. He can just say what whatever the hell he wants, because that's the expectation at this point. Meanwhile. We should have all known that uh, Republicans would reject an independent commission, bipartisan commission, to in- investigate the January 6th insurrection, the insurgency of dunces. But I, I just want to point out that you have, you know, the, the basic storyline on the right is that we should we should move past that, that nobody wants to keep relitigating that. Nobody wants to keep talking about Donald Trump's claims that the election was stolen, the big lie. And yet he continues to talk about it. Um, The Washington Post reported this week that uh, inspired by the Arizona recount, quote unquote recount, this ridiculous audit by Cyber Ninjas, a pretend company or whatever, company headed up by 
a conspiracy theorist that had no experience in election auditing whatsoever. Um, Trump loyalists pushed to revisit election results in communities around the country. And they're also taking over local uh, Republican parties. So this is ongoing, right? The, re- the insurrection is ongoing. And it's just based on based on lies. We're gonna we're gonna talk about this more in the coming weeks. We're gonna do a show on propaganda. But for now, let's um let's move along. We're gonna take a quick break and then come back with Svante Myrick. Uh, stay tuned. The lace lady travel with grace, baby. I can't afford to cover the course. Of course, maybe settle that one in court. Cause judging by the basics, y'all already comfortable, stuck up in the matrix. Shit is basic. Pat's credentials, but understand your favorite rapper, peep my gold potential. I'm out of shame, been passive, trying to fit the circle cause I don't know how to act shit. Half of y'all was steady, insecure, don't try to backflip, just because the seasoning and flow's already active. Only four years, fantastic, young veteran, new classic. Nah, knock the walls off, fuck the whole key, we gon' hinge the whole door off. I'm still AD, never forget it, it's life after death, roll the credits. Credit my maker, take a trip to see Jamaica. Molly spirit with the vapor back design. That's the nature. Africa, the new America. I hope I run this permanent. And this I put my pen in it. Got my land and my permit with it. Bone on my bone, flesh off my flesh. Weightness in me, you can't make me feel less. Let's hold. I'm not impressed. Best smoke on my for like an impress. Great state I'm in. In all states I'm in. I might find a form in my melanin. Great state I'm in. In all states I'm in. I might find a form. Welcome back. I'm still Joshua Holland, and I'm very happy to be joined by Savante Myrick. Uh, the young and yet long-serving mayor of Ithaca, New York, which is around uh, 150 miles from where I sit. Uh, mayor Myrick, welcome to We've Got Issues. Thank you so much. Appreciate uh, appreciate you having me on. And I appreciate uh, you still calling me young. That's very, uh, oh my gen- goodness. That's very no, generous of you. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're one of those people, like I'm middle-aged, I'm 50, and you're one of those people that just makes us feel old because... No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but no, I, let, so listeners should know that Mayor Myrick was uh, elected, were you 20... Four when I you was twenty four, yes. Twenty four. Yes, yes. So when I was, what was I doing when I was twenty four? I was literally just, I, I was chasing women. I was, <laughs> that's all I was doing. And did I even have a job? I think I did have a job. I was like tending bar or something like that's that. Funny. <laughs> that's very funny. Well, it's it's definitely they they it's there's that was ten years ago, and those yeah. are ten mayor years, which are like dog years. So I feel about right. uh, I feel about one hundred and thirty. Uh, I mean, that that long connection to the community, I'm sure, has um, made it possible for you to advance um, what is arguably one of the most ambitious policing reform agendas in the entire country. A little bit more than a month ago, your city council unanimously signed off on this reform proposal. It is consistent with what many activists refer to as defunding the police, although we'll come back to why that is a widely misunderstood term and um, 
but I think first, I, I guess congratulations are in order, although I also understand that this was a first step, the city mm-hmm. council signing off on that, of um, a kind of longer process of rebuilding your public safety infrastructure pretty much from the ground up. Let me ask you where you're at in this effort, um, kind of procedurally, what, what happens next? Sure. Yeah. We we well, it's it's what often happens next, which is that there there will be working groups and committees uh, in government. We we will meet. That is the only thing you know for sure about a government. So there will be meetings. So we uh, have uh, tasked a working group to deliver to the Common Council by September their design recommendations for how we're to structure our new Department of Public Safety and Community Solutions. Uh, we know for sure. We we've told the working group. We want there to be a civilian head of the new agency. We want there to be an unarmed division uh, of community solution workers paired with armed uh, uh, public safety workers. And we want the new department to start building and centering a culture of de-escalation, conflict resolution, uh, racial and social justice right into the DNA of the new department. So um, council has approved this direction and they've, they've asked for the working group to deliver some designs and uh, those designs should be completed by the fall. So you expect to see a new agency stood up in 2022 or 2023? I would, I would uh, now I'm, I'm using a little bit of guesswork here. So with a grain of salt, I think 2023 is the uh, most reasonable goal for the complete changeover to the new department. I think okay. we'll move in an iterative process. I can expect that next year we'll begin hiring some of the unarmed community solution workers. Uh, already this year, we've changed our SWAT tactics, committing to no longer using no-knock warrants, removing all weapons from the SWAT vehicle and repurposing it into a mobile command center. So there'll be a bunch of different checkpoints along the way that should get us there. But I think the complete changeover should take about two years. And in addition to eliminating no-knock warrants for uh, drug offenses, they've um, barred the use of camouflage uniforms, uh, unless unless officers are actually in the woods where it makes a certain amount of sense. So we're yeah. kind of demilitarizing, um, taking the Baghdad out of Ithaca, if you will. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and those are, those are aesthetic changes. I mean, Josh, you'll, you'll know. Those are aesthetic changes. And so you ask yourself, how much do aesthetics matter? And it's not everything, but it is something. You know, because when you want to change a culture, you got to understand what is a culture. A culture is how people behave. It's what they wear. It's what they joke about. It's what they find acceptable, what they find unacceptable. It's, it's their language. It's sort of everything. So if we really want to change the culture of public safety in America, we should leave no stone unturned, which is why those aesthetic changes are important, too. I think that's really important. Uh, a point that I've made on this show before is that, you know, we rightly focus on racially discriminatory policing, where there are so many aspects to fixing um, American policing from training, uh, cultural interventions, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's a very important point. But at the, at the center of, of what you're trying to do, as, as you already alluded to, is you're standing up a Department of Community Solutions, um, which would have armed and unarmed public safety workers. And I think we can all picture the armed public safety workers because they are effectively cops, as we are somewhat familiar with them. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of training 
and recruiting would the unarmed public safety workers need to have? Like, where are you getting these people? Yeah, yeah, and and we don't know yet for sure, but here's here's what we intend, is that there is a huge number of, of call types that never result in an arrest, but that we send armed uniformed officers to anyway, right? So if it's taking report about a stolen bicycle or responding to the scene of a car accident, or even uh, mental health distress calls, um, we're sending armed officers, which not only pulls them away from, you know, solving gun crimes, but also often escalates the situation on the ground where they arrive uh, armed. And people's reaction, mostly due to their own past trauma around figures of authority and around law enforcement, often can cause those situations to go sideways. So we're starting to design this new department by looking at the existing call types and saying, for which of these call types can we send an unarmed response to? And then working backwards from there saying, what kind of person do we want showing up on the scene? The first thing we know is that we want those people to reflect the diversity of the community, right? We don't want, you know, law enforcement is an overwhelmingly male and overwhelmingly white uh, profession right now for no good reason. I mean, it, it doesn't work better that way. In fact, in many ways, it works worse that way. Yes. But we also want backgrounds that show us a demonstrated ability to de-escalate conflict. So I, I think, you know, uh, I, when I watch an eighth grade math teacher um, govern a room full of 25, you know, hormonal uh, teenagers and somehow make them know math uh, while de-escalating a thousand small conflicts a day, I think to myself, we should put them on our workforce, double their salary and have them walking the street uh, engaging with, you know, engaging yeah. with, uh, with the community and helping to solve problems. That makes uh, so much sense. It's almost like um, it should be in a different country than the United States. Um, <laughs> I should, I should tell you and certainly listeners that my, my mother is a psychiatric social worker and she um, used to take part in a program with New Haven where she would be a first responder for um, mental health crises calls, oh, nice. but she would go with police officers. And the, the idea was that she would take the lead unless there was a situation that escalated where my little you know, mother could not handle it. Mm-hmm. Has, is that a, a thought um, when you're putting these together that maybe you would have certain calls that you have a non-police responder take the lead in ter- ter- terms of say someone who's having a mental health crisis where they're trained in first response in in de-escalating and managing that that yeah. conflict but maybe there's somebody with a gun there I, right. I mean is that yeah that's definitely part of the thinking and that's to, to get really into the weeds what our proposal actually calls for is three different tiers of response so we've talked so far about our armed workers and our unarmed workers We also want a third force. We already have a third force. We just want to make it more robust and make it available 24-7. And those are the trained mental health professionals that can either respond solo or co-respond. That's what we call it when they show up in tandem with police officers, co-respond to the scene of somebody in mental health and a mental health crisis. So really, we'd have three tools in our tool belt. You know, uh, if, if I went on vacation last week, I come home, my bike's been stolen. 
I don't need a police officer with a gun to show up to take the report. I also don't need a trained psychologist to show up to right. take the report. I, I need a third thing. And that's where the unarmed community solution workers are going to be um, essential. So, so yes, exactly what you're describing in New Haven, which your mother did. That's what, how was her experience, by the way? Or was I, it? Uh, I think so. This might've been when she lived in Norwalk, actually. But um, yeah. her experience was very rich and, um, she, I, I don't, they did not lose anybody in mm. these, in these incidents. And there were a number of very hairy situations that probably would have ended up in violence mm. if she had not been there in her, to, to mother it. Right. She yeah. like brought the mom and my yeah. mom is like, <laughs> my mom is like a, you know, if you, if you have a conflict and you don't want to start shooting, like my mom is a good model. <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. And I think the, the, for a very long time, and this was true in Ithaca and true across the country, we've been looking for one type of police officer, you know, yeah. which was, especially, you know, folks that got back from overseas, they, you know, you look on paper and you interview them and they, they've, been instilled with such discipline and they know how to wear a uniform and they've been trained in firearms and they're already accustomed to taking orders. And, and so many of our veterans have done such a good job for us that it's like that became the sole model. But you need all sorts of different types of people to police a modern American city. Like it's, 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 you know, it's silly to just have one tool in your tool belt. We, we need all, we need, you know, we need that mother energy out there yeah. on the street too. Yeah, yeah. So um, I wanna to talk to you a little bit about how the, the police are responding to these proposals and broadly, you know, how, how the, the, the role of, of like the police unions and all that stuff. Um, before I get into that, you, you mentioned that you wanna replace the traditional kind of police chief with a civilian official running all of this. Um, why do you think that's important? Well, there's a, f I mean, one's a cultural reason and the other is a practical reason. And, and so the cultural reason is so that we can help break um, folks out of the paradigm they've been trapped in, you know, especially members of law enforcement. You know, they live in, I mean, there's been much ink spent on how we all live in our separate ideological bubbles. Yes. We all read news that agrees with our worldview and and reinforces what we believe. That's true in the law enforcement profession too. And it, I think it's really important for them to be successful, to bring in leadership that can help them see the world in a, in a new way outside of just, we went through the academy, you've been on the street, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is the way the world is. But there's also a practical reason. And that, that practical reason is that right now, in order to be a police chief, in New York State, and a lot of states have rules like this, you have to be a current law enforcement officer, and you have to have started your career in New York State, which immediately, really quickly narrows who's qualified to take the job, right? It's got to be folks, not only have you had to be in law enforcement, so immediately your pool of potential applicants is tiny. You have to have been on the job long enough to have risen to a rank of lieutenant or deputy, deputy chief or captain. Now you're talking about a really tiny, tiny number of people who are even qualified. And then uh, you can't hire somebody from Chicago or from Florida or from Oregon 
right? You've got to hire folks who started their careers in New York State. Now you're talking about like 12 people who are even qualified to be your police chief. And then even further, you know, our officers right now can retire after 20 years. They get fully vested with their pension after, after 20 years on the job. Uh, which means that often when people take their police, it would take the, the mantle of police chief, usually they're 20 or 25 years, maybe even 30 years into the job. Uh, they view it as a capstone and then they retire pretty quickly, you know, after two years, three years on average. So you're not getting the, the long-term stable leadership that you need inside these departments to institute a culture of, of change and reform. You know, I think that the, I, I didn't know that about the the kind of narrowing of the applicants that you can even consider, but it seems like a way to replicate a culture that, you know, an antiquated police culture, because you really need people who have yes. been on the force for, in New York for many years to have even worked their way up that. So they were trained, you figure, yeah. um, decades ago, years ago, before this kind of broader awareness of the importance of community relations and all of that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it seems like, you know, we see this story all the time. Police unions are always dead set against any reform. Uh, they are a big obstacle to changing our policing for the better. Mm -hmm. As far as rank and file officers, I have always imagined, and maybe I'm wrong here, that they would actually prefer to not be social workers and like homeless liaisons and mental health workers. I've always thought that they'd probably prefer to focus on responding to, you know, criminal calls um, rather than the, the calls that you're talking about where, you know, nobody's going to get arrested. Mm -hmm. Is that consistent with your view? And, and do you think there's a disconnect between, you know, the, the police and their unions or, or the police and their view of what you're doing with, with what you're doing? Yeah. I, I, that's a, it's a, it's a really good question. It, it really varies by the person. I mean, there are, there are some folks who signed up for this profession because they wanted to, you know, get guns off the street and, and, and focus on solving crimes and, and, uh, you know, delivering justice for the victims of crimes. There are other people who got in the profession because they want, they want to more generally to protect and serve. They like the idea of walking around and being the neighborhood officer who, you called when you know if your if your son was missing or your cat was stuck in a tree or you were locked out of your house you know and i think what's neat about our model is that this will allow people um, not only to self-sort and to specialize right the people who want to be community solution workers um, can focus on those latter things but it will also uh, prevent the <clears throat> It's not misunderstandings, but it's it's a mismatch of um, how people show up. Like again, when our officers show up on the scene, fully uniformed with their gun on their hip, this is triggering to a lot of people and can cause situations that would otherwise remain calm to escalate and get out of hand really quickly as people make bad choices, as they react defensively. Um, and it, we see this a lot in traffic stops, for example, where the officers, that's the most dangerous thing officers do. It's not just dangerous for the citizens being stopped by police, but it's dangerous for the officers themselves. And it's because they have a gun and the person in the car, if they have a gun, they know the cop has a gun. And now they're in this tense 
am I about to be shot? Should I shoot this officer or should I run away from the officer in some high speed chase that's also going to be dangerous? And where instead, if you knew you were being pulled over and you were going to be given a ticket, you know, our, our, um, our CSOs, which is what we call the folks that do uh, uh, parking enforcement, our parking enforcement officers, yeah. they've got a difficult job too. It's tricky. It's an enforcement job. People are often upset with them. Um, but their job is not as dangerous because uh, uh, most it is it is dangerous. I should be clear. Sometimes they they have to deal with harassment, and uh, very rarely there are assaults. But but uh, most times they are not shot at because uh, people know they're not carrying a weapon. The most the worst they can do is give you a ticket. Yeah. Uh, so so trying to create responses that make everybody feel safer. And here's what we also think. Not only will we have more people entering the profession of public safety, if there are options beyond just law enforcement, right? If I'm 20 years old and I'm like, I want to serve my community. I, I don't mind working outside. I, I like engaging with people and I like solving problems and helping keep people safe, but I'm not interested in carrying a weapon and arresting people and tackling folks. And that's not what I want to do. Well, now there's a whole new venue for you to join public safety and help keep your community safe. But also the public, here's Josh, here, here's what we don't know is how many calls are we not receiving? Right. How many people are not who need help are not calling for help because either they are themselves afraid of the police, uh, they're worried that the the public safety response is going to get them in trouble with their neighbors or with their family or get their neighbors or their family in trouble with the law, right? So how many people are just not calling for help that could be calling for help and receiving a, you know, a culturally appropriate response that right now we're just missing? So that's such an important point. I mean, there are people who are, you know, they would want to call the cops. It's happened to me, honestly. I, I live in a, a neighborhood, a very diverse neighborhood. We've had a lot of problems with some people on the, um, and some neighbors, and they've gotten into fights and stuff like that. And I'm always worried about calling the cops on them because right. for obvious reasons, right? I mean, I just, I'm not comfortable um, exposing them to that risk. And right. um, it's, it's a super important point. Let me ask you this. Um, you said in an interview with uh, GQ magazine, and congrats on being stylish enough for an no, interview. Oh my God, I, I, will never, I will never live that down. I'll <laughs> never live that down. Well, my brothers it, were very clear. They're like, if you make it into GQ because of your nerdy policy, <laughs> that does not make you cool. Yeah, and no, you like, win okay. that one. You yeah. totally win that one, yeah. But yeah. that was an interview with Wesley Lowry, who's an excellent reporter, by the way. Yes. Um, you said that you thought that your city's total public safety budget might increase with these two with these twin age or twin functions within this public safety issue. And I, I think that's um, a way to segment, to segue to this, this debate that we've been having uh, over, um, you know, defunding the police. Last year, some Democrats representing like purple or swing districts blamed activists calling for defunding the police for what they perceived as a backlash that cost them some house seats. Uh, I don't, I don't ascribe to that bit of punditry for reasons that we've covered in other, in other shows, but I just want to ask you like whether that national debate has impacted your, your local efforts to do this. How has that 
you know, that feedback loop. You've got Fox News going on about how this is terrible and nobody's going to be able to call anybody if they're in a crisis, if police agencies are defunded. And then you have this reality where you're actually going to be increasing your public safety budget. Yeah. Um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's definitely it's part of the problem with slogans. I mean, so first of all, it's it's just wrong to blame activists for not just electoral outcomes. I mean, it's like blaming canaries for the the air quality in a mine. Yeah. You know, like how how dare you, canary? And it's like the canary is pointing <laughs> out the problem. They're not creating the problem. And well, and, well let me just inter interject here because yeah. the thing that I and I've, I've brought this up on other shows, but the the thing is that two things. First of all, most of those Democrats did not in any way advocate for defunding the police. Right. Secondly again, there is the efforts that you're describing that most activists favor um, as opposed to the kind of the narrative that you see again, Fox News and elsewhere. So for me, that's a, to the degree that um, people believed that they would be left high and dry and not be able to call anybody, right. that's a disinformation problem. That's right, yeah, that's no, no. right. And I think that's a, you know, it, that's it, it's on leaders at the local at, at all levels to describe what we're for, you know, which is, it, yes, it is for a less militarized form of policing. It's for um, fewer negative interactions. It's for uh, a form of public safety that can be delivered without heavy-handed law enforcement. I mean, that's what we're that's what we want, and it should be what everybody wants. But the the words get in the way. In fact, you know, we we had an arbitration. Our we're an ongoing um, uh, disagreement with our police union about the the contract. It's taken ten years to to negotiate a contract because we just can't come to terms. And you know, they brought to the arbitration as sort of evidence of some nefarious. Uh, so last year during COVID, we had a you know terrible impacts on the finances of cities. When all the restaurants and stores, retail shut down, that stopped the flow of, of sales tax revenue, which is a big part. It's like a third of all of how we finance the city. So we not only had to furlough a quarter of our workforce, uh, we also defunded a bunch of positions, which is what you call it when there's positions that are vacant uh, that you're no longer going to fund. We defunded something like 25 DPW workers, uh, defunded a few administrative positions, defunded six, five, six police officer positions. I mean, we spent hours in this arbitration with the, the police union hammering. See, it says right here, right on this PowerPoint slide, defund five positions. Which I was like, yeah, I, I don't know what you think that means, but it means that we didn't have officers in those positions. The city was strapped for cash. So we just decided we were not gonna fill those those seats but it was clear with the weight with which they said it was almost like the d word right <laughs> yes. that they were that they were they were like hashtagging it in real time and trying to connect in the minds of the arbitrator you know all of the rush limbaugh and fox news defund means you're not gonna you you're gonna be in trouble and you're gonna call and nobody's gonna show up our plan is exactly the opposite we will have faster response times but better responses we will be sending to the scene of your uh, emergency or the scene of your neighbor dispute uh, 
uh, a response that actually keeps everyone safe and that everyone feels comfortable with. To me, that's that's safer than the alternative. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I, I've I've brought this up before. It, you know, there was a large survey of active duty police officers in 2016, found 84% of them supporting Donald Trump. Um, I, you know, people are certainly welcome and and have the right to believe whatever they want. But I do think it is important to understand that our police officers are watching the same kind of siloed media as um, other Trump supporters, and you end up with these kinds of issues. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a kind of longstanding, uh, a longstanding structural problem. Mayor Myrick, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it. I have other questions, honestly, like I could talk to you for four hours about this. <laughs> I would love to have you on I, in a yeah. year or so. Maybe we can follow up. Sure. I would love to come back. And I just want to point out that uh, terrible financial position that cities were put in, where a lot of us had to reduce our budgets across the board, as well as in the city, in the police departments themselves, were caused by a terrible federal response to the coronavirus and yeah. a refusal on the part of Donald Trump and the Republicans to uh, send aid to municipalities. So, uh, you know, uh, nobody did more to defund the police than Donald Trump. That's right. That's right. Mayor, thank you so much. Folks, Take we're going to take a quick break and then come right back with a wild story about a sailor stuck on a boat for four years. Stay tuned. Prim and proper, the girl who's never been kissed. But I'm tired of being pure and a nut chase. Like something that sakes its level. I wanna go to the devil, I wanna be evil. I wanna spit tax, I wanna be evil. And cheat at jacks, I wanna be wicked, I wanna tell I want to be mean and throw my pies. I want to wake up in the morning with that dark brown taste. I want to see some dissipation in my face. I want to be evil. I want to be mad. But more than that, I want to be bad. I want to be evil and jump an ace just to see my partner's face. I wanna be nasty, I wanna be cruel, I wanna be daring, I wanna shoot pool, and in the theater, I want to change my seat, just so I can step on everybody's feet. I wanna be evil, I wanna hurt flies, I wanna sing songs like the guy who cries, I wanna be horrid, I wanna drink booze. And whatever I've got, I am eager to lose. I wanna be evil, little evil me, just as mean and evil as. Welcome back. I'm still Joshua Holland. I'm joined now by Drew Henshaw. He's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. And Drew um, did a story recently with Joe Parkinson. It was a it was what I found a, a pretty bizarre story. It's it's titled 
Trapped aboard an abandoned cargo ship, one sailor's four-year ordeal. You can check it out at wsj.com. Drew was kind enough to offer us his time to talk about it. Uh, Drew, welcome to We've Got Issues. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. So I'm going to start this the way you start the piece. You start as Chief Mate Mohammed Aisha, a Syrian sailor, is stranded on this cargo ship in the Red Sea just outside the Suez Canal. He's the only guy on this giant ship called the MV Amman. And he wakes up and thinks the ship is about to sink. (laughs) Let's let's begin with that moment and what happened next. And then we'll backtrack to how he got there. Right. The ship was listing 10 degrees. Um, There was no electricity really on the ship. He had to climb up five flights of stairs to get to the bridge. He's got his phone, which is his lifeline to the world. He shines it on um, the instrument, the climometer that um, seafarers use to see, you know, the angle their ship is floating at, basically. And it's listing 10 degrees starboard, uh, which is pretty, you know, it's not like the ship's going to go under, but uh, like any second. But uh, if you're all alone on an abandoned cargo ship, huge 5,000 ton ship, like several football fields long, five stories tall on the bridge, and it's starting to like list at that degrees you're not going to be able to fix it on your own. And um, he's in trouble. But this seems like it's a good thing for him, actually, ironically. He's in a way terrified because this ship might slowly capsize and he's the only person on board. And if it goes under, it's 5,000 tons of weight are going to suck him to the bottom of the Red Sea. On the, the, the bright side is he's wanted to get off this ship for years and this is his best chance to do so. Because he figures, okay, well, if I'm a, on a sinking ship, right, they have to come and rescue me. For years, he'd been forbidden from leaving the ship, but they can't. The Egyptian authorities who made sure he can't leave the ship, they can't keep him on the ship if the ship is sinking. <laughs> okay, so let's backtrack. So uh, this guy Aisha boarded this ship in the early summer of 2017, uh, and this this incident occurred two years later. How did the ship get stuck just outside the Suez Canal? And how did this man, who was in his 20s at the time, right? He's, he's a young man. He's in a younger son, yeah. Be, become personally responsible for this ship and the sole person on board. Right. The ship was stuck at the Suez Canal, the, the mouth of the Suez Canal, because it, it had some paperwork problems and it owed, uh, I think, $21,000 for a three-ton anchor. So somebody called in his debt. Now, this ship is worth millions and millions of dollars. This is 2017, June 2017. Mohammed Aisha uh, from Syria, the first mate of the ship, uh, chief mate of the ship, he'd only been on for a couple months. Some uh, officers from an Egyptian court come on with a piece of paper. They need him to sign. The captain's on shore running some errands. He signs. He's thinking, okay, the ship owes $21,000 for an anchor, but it is itself worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. Surely the owner is just going to pay for the anchor sometime in the next 24 hours, 48 hours, and the ship will keep sailing. That didn't happen. The owner of the ship never paid the bill. Other people started to call in their debts. People, you know, a ship owes money to so many people, food, supplies, maintenance. You know, there's an army of people who are constantly owed money uh, to keep a ship afloat. And as soon as a ship stops paying its debts, everybody calls in their debts at once. And all of a sudden, this ship is stuck at the mouth of the Suez Canal, like a little bit into the Red Sea, 
um, uh, and it can't move until its debts are cleared. The problem is Muhammad Aisha signed this piece of paper saying he's the legal guardian of the ship. You can't just leave a ship alone in the sea. Someone has to be on it at all times, pretty much. So um, now what? Uh, he can't. The Egyptian authorities were not going to let him leave the boat until uh, its its bills were paid. It it is it it is kind of a mystery here, right? Because as you say, it was just a twenty one thousand dollar bill, and before the flurry of other debts were called, it it doesn't make a lot of sense that the ship's owners, who seem pretty shady, right? I mean, I'll I'll, I'll editorialize on your behalf, <laughs> right? Like, it's definitely a shady thing here. Um, they. There's no indication in the story of why they didn't just pay the $21,000 up front. Yeah, if all of this sounds shady and weird to you and opaque and complicated, uh, welcome to like the shipping industry. In this case, it's just a really opaque, bizarre world. Um, in this case, you've got a Syrian man who's on a boat that was flagged to the country of Bahrain, but appears to be owned by um, individuals in Oman, and it is stuck at the mouth of the Suez Canal. Uh, there's like four or five governments happening here at once. Um, and it's really complicated and bureaucratic. And, and that is the maze of Kafkaesque bureaucracy that keeps Muhammad Aisha on board this boat for a very long time. Now, it's, um, so he starts out, he's not the only crewman, uh, crewman aboard in the beginning of this odyssey. He's got other guys there playing background, backgammon and cards to pass the time and stuff like that. But he's basically in prison and they start to take off as they can. The rest of the crew haven't signed this piece of paper claiming responsibility over this hulking ship that's stuck in limbo. Right. Um, and and he's he's confined by the police, right? It's, it's not a prison per se, but it is effectively so. Um, right. So by 2019... All the other crew members are like, you know, for a while they had hung out hoping that they could get paid. And, you know, but at, by 2019, they're like, OK, they're all out of there. And um, he's completely alone. So how does he bide his time? Because I would go nuts. Yeah, he starts reading every book he can get his hands on. He watched clips from the Shawshank Redemption uh, over and over <laughs> at, at, um, at one point, he... Uh, he, you know, he several times he would get in one of the lifeboats and just roar, roar, go to shore and say, "Guys, I can't stay on this boat." Nobody was feeding him, nobody was taking care of him, nobody was buying diesel fuel for the boat to keep its lights on. You know, you need boats have engines. You, you know, the lights you need to keep the electricity going to charge your phone and everything else. Nobody's paying for that. Nobody's giving him water. Nobody's giving him medication for simple little ailments that you get when you're on an abandoned ship. Um, he goes to shore several times. At one point, he begs the police, like, please, just put me in one of your jails. And they say, sorry, we can't do that because you've done nothing wrong, but you do need to go back to the boat. I mean, it is it, Kafka-esque is overused, right? Uh, but it is yeah. it is Kafka-esque, right? I mean, right. <laughs> I mean it's, 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 it's crazy that this can happen. It's like something out of the 15th century, you know? A, a boat owes money. You know, Muhammad Aisha didn't owe money. He just took a job the way you or me take a job. And because the ship owes all this money, someone has to stay on board. He has to stay on board. He can't leave. He's stuck on the ship. 
basically until they sell it to a new owner or it pays its bills or some miracle happens and he's able to get off. He's just stuck there. Yeah. I mean, when you say it's like a story out of the 15th century, I, I was struck by that when I was reading it because I was thinking, you know, this, this really is something that you could see happening in like Jamaica with some, you know, shipment of, of sugar or something or rum. And, and you think, okay, this is the rule of law has always been weak at sea and continues to the, to this day. I mean, piracy continues to be an issue. Fishing fleets still do battle over fisheries, et cetera, et cetera. And what's so striking about the story is that, um, it's not an isolated incident, right? I mean, yeah, that's right. It's a record. Where these are called this. This is called seafarer abandonment, and it's when the owner of a ship, for whatever reason, maybe they are just like they've borrowed too much money and they've gone bankrupt. Maybe they're just sort of a, a prodigal son who's wasting their family's money and doesn't care. But for whatever reason, a ship owner just runs out of money. Well, there's people aboard that ship. What happens to them? They can get stuck. I mean, this happens all you know. All over the world, there's a group of people who've been off the coast of Haiti for five years. A lot of time what happens is seafarers, the crew, stay on the boat because they think, well, the only way we're ever going to get paid is when the ship gets sold. Because when it gets sold, we kind of get first dibs on some of the money, right? Like when they sell it, a court will say, okay, well, the crew is owed all these back wages, so they get the first chunk of the money from whatever. And, you know, ships are worth tens of millions of dollars, so surely a pretty big sum. Whereas if they get off the boat, a lot of times they think, the second I leave this boat, I'm out of luck. I'm not going to get paid a cent for all the time I've sat here waiting to get paid. So you have crew all over the world who are just sitting on boats right now waiting to get paid. And who feeds them? Who gives them water? Who takes care of them? Who keeps the lights on? Sometimes ports are nice and they're like, oh man, we feel bad for these guys. Sometimes ports are like, yeah, it's not our fault, not our problem. And you quote the International Seafarers Union saying there's been like a thousand people, sailors who were abandoned. And that's probably a lowball estimate. Mm-hmm. Now, at some point, Aisha's plight starts to get some attention um, from the International Seafarers Union and others, I guess. And uh, at around the same time, the ship pulls its anchor uh, and ends up running aground close to shore. And both yeah. of these things kind of change the picture, right? What happens is there's a giant storm at this point, the agent for the ship, who himself wanted some like money, he's got a lot of money for the, the services he's done, he hires an old man uh, to just be on the ship, keep an eye on Muhammad Aisha. Um, and they've kind of become companions in a way because they're now both stuck on this ship in this absurd situation. And one day at night, there's a giant storm and it starts to push the ship and it's dragging its anchor. It can't control where it's going. There's no fuel on the boat anymore to, to steer it, basically. It's, it's going to hit an oil tanker. It barely misses it. It almost hits an oil rig, barely misses it. Ends up um, beaching. And this, this horrible storm, ends up being the best thing that happens to Muhammad Aisha because now he is only a few hundred meters from shore. He can swim um, to shore. There's a little village there with palm trees and apartment buildings and people you know, playing in the, in the water. Um, and here he is. He's on his boat. He hasn't been able to like, see people or go shopping or buy himself food in, in years. Well, now he can you know, s- put his cell phone in a Ziploc bag or a plastic bag and swim to shore. And um, that's what he starts to do. He starts just to go to shore and, and seek medical care and get food and everything else a person needs. So how does this story end? I mean, there is a sad part of it, like several of his 
relatives, including his mother, pass away yeah, while he's yeah. stuck he, on this ship. He loses his mom on this while he's on the ship. You know, he doesn't get to say goodbye to her. Um, everyone else had been able to leave, but he couldn't leave, and he's just stuck on this boat through no fault of his own. And um, he loses his mom while he's on the ship. She was helping him, you know, bake, you know, make food out of the ingredients he had in the pantry to kind of walk him through recipes. Then he he's on the boat for several more years. The ITF, uh, a seafarers union, gets involved, and in, what they do is they find someone who's willing to replace Muhammad Aisha as the legal guardian for this ship, and through some sort of arrangement with the Egyptian police that I never fully understood, that person doesn't have to actually live on the boat. And a court has to approve it, and it goes to court, and you know the court takes forever. The court says, we're going to give you an answer on, on Sunday after like more than a month of this, months of this. The court says, we're going to give you an answer on Sunday. Sunday comes, I was there when this happened, no answer. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, his grandmother dies. He never got to say goodbye to his grandmother. Um, yeah. Friday or Saturday, then a few days later after that, decision finally arrived and then within 24 48 hours he was home wow wow and and then he gets home and it's it, the pandemic is <laughs> That's right. i mean the irony of this is that you know we've all been isolated but this he was abandoned you know and yeah. these abandonment cases they went up last year and a big part of that is because of of the covid 19 pandemic and just the kind of um calamity that you know that it was a really complicated and, and disastrous year for the shipping industry you had lots and lots and lots of sailors who literally could not get home because of the travel restrictions yeah i, I mean and it wasn't just cargo uh, cargo ships that had that experience i mean there was a piece uh, i believe in in the wall street journal i don't, I don't believe you're, you wrote that piece but it was about um cruise ship crews that were stuck right. and yeah. they were i think multiple thousands of them there were also a number of suicides yeah exactly there's huge numbers of crew who are working this is different from abandonment abandonment yeah. is like the owner stops paying you answering your emails you're on a boat and you don't know what to do that's abandonment that's what happened to muhammad aisha plus muhammad aisha was forced to stay on the boat there's another issue which is crew change which is you know you were working on a boat for six months it's time to go home and the owner basically emails and says hey we've got a problem because of covid the new crew that's supposed to replace you can't uh, replace you. Also, you can't get home because, you know, you're to get home, you've got to fly through, I don't know, London and that you have to quarantine for 14 days and they're not accept, you know, whatever. And um, the end result is that many, many, many thousands of, of sailors have just been working for like nearly, you know, like more than a year, getting on two years now, just nonstop on boats and they can't go home and they've gone, they're having suicides. And it's just, you know, imagine working without a break on a ship for two years and you don't know when you're going home. Yeah. Yeah. Now, before I let you go, I, you recently released a book. It's pretty much brand new. It's unrelated to the story. You co-authored it with, um, with John Parkinson, Joe Parkinson. Mm -hmm. It's titled bring back our girls. Before I let you go, can you tell us a little bit about that project? Sure. This is the untold story of what it took to free the Chibok girls. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, six years ago, seven years ago, we all tweeted the words, bring back our girls, a call to bring home this group of, of nearly 300 young women, teenagers, high school seniors who had been kidnapped by terrorist group Boko Haram on the night before their final exams. Yes. And we all tweeted that. And then within a few days, we'd moved on to the next viral cause, which was the ice bucket challenge. But in the background, huh. um, the hostage talks continued. Drones went looking for these young women. Uh, glory hunters from all over the world uh, tried to find them. 
a, a small group of a group of Swiss mediators and um, ended up uh, rescuing them, bringing them home. Um, you know, some of them went to one of them went to jail. They were like venturing into forests to try to find and free them, and they succeeded. Um, and while they that took three years, and while that was going on, the young women themselves came of age in captivity. Um, you know, they were keeping diaries. Their captors gave them notebooks they were supposed to use to take um, copy the Quran into, but they used it to you know keep diaries. They were singing songs at night. They were um, smuggling food to each other. Sometimes they would stage hunger strikes. They were resisting their captors for years and finding um, ways to survive until eventually 103 were able to, to come home. And How were, long were they in captivity? Three years. They were in captivity three years. They were eating. At one point, they were so hungry, they were, um, you know, they, at one point, they were killing ants to eat the crumbs the ants were carrying. I mean, they were, they were really hungry, but they never relented to their captors were saying, we'll feed you better food if you convert to our, you know, fundamentalist ideology. And they were resisting. They kept, you know, they kept true to their, their, their principles and held on to their friendships and their faith for, for three years. Oh, that sounds like an amazing story. Folks, check out Drew's stuff at wsj.com and check out the new book. It's titled Bring Back Our Girls. Drew, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, too. Always, always good to chat with you. I also want to thank Svante Myrick for joining us. I'd like to thank David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Alternet and Ross Story for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I would like to thank all of you good people for tuning in. Have a terrific week. Crazy. That's how it goes. Millions of people live in this force. Maybe it's not too late to learn how to love, forget how to hate. Mental wounds not healing, life's a bit of shame. I'm going off the rails on a crazy train. I've listened to preachers. I've listened to fools. I've watched all the dropouts who make their own rules. One person conditioned to rule and control. The media sells it, and you live the role. Mental wounds still screaming, driving me insane. I'm going off the rails on a crazy train.